the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Justin. Hello, everyone. Hey, Lindsay. You know, I'm get, I'm getting sick of us not being able to uh, record in the same room together, but I, I feel like I'm I've gotten used to it now, which bothers me that I'm used to us not recording uh, together and us having to do it remotely. But I'm just thinking I'm just gonna go ahead and like move to Australia or something, yeah, yeah. and I mean we could still do this and we. Yeah, there's fine. no reason for us to live in the same city anymore. No, <laughs> no, no reason at all. <laughs> um, but welcome to the podcast. We're out of our favorite month. Uh, thank you if you listened in and supported our uh, October Halloween movies celebration. That was a lot of fun. You know, it's always I kind of have that weird feeling of you know cha- switching gears. You know, I've I've watched just so many horror movies through the month of October, so. It was kind of refreshing to kind of take a break from that and to watch the movie that we're talking about today, and that's 1999's uh, Alexander Payne's Election. And tis the season, really. I mean, no matter what your political leanings are, if you even have any, it is election season, and we couldn't think of a better movie that is is possibly something we're all familiar with, going to school, going to high school, and taking this little microcosm that is high school life and uh you know maybe applying it to reality into adult world but this is a great movie and if you haven't seen it in a while i don't even know what to tell you to watch it first and then listen to this or listen to us and then watch it but man it's deserved of of more than one viewing yeah this is i've watched this movie three times in the last two weeks I liked this movie when it came out, but I just have this whole new appreciation for this movie. It's just so sharp. It's so well-written. The performances are just so biting and great. And this movie is like oddly as relevant now, if not more, when it came out. And it really does kind of show you how there's not a big difference between a small election and a big election. The campaigning and all the craziness and all the emotions um, you know, they're all they're all involved. And even when it's on a small scale like high school and, you know, questioning your moralities and your ethics and, and issues that you're on. I mean, it's all laid out in this movie and it's wild how oddly it really reflects real life. And, you know, and again, like you said, it's it's election season. And so we decided to we love themes here. At Don't push pause. So we figured, uh, you know, whether you're happy or disappointed about the outcome, I think we can all agree we're happy that the campaigning is over. Take a nice break, put on the movie election, you know, and, and enjoy a laugh. Maybe it'll be cathartic in some ways, yeah, no matter what your feelings. Possibly. Well, we have a lot to talk about for this episode. Uh, we're certainly going to get into the uh, origins of this movie, uh, how it was adapted from a novel. Uh, the pre-production, there was a lot that went on uh, with this movie and getting it made, and a, a lot of people were involved in, in making this a, a really original and edgy comedy. There was a lot of edgy movies in, in the late 90s, but I think this one really, really stands out, especially for a movie that's a comedy that also has like such 
intricate performances. And biting satire, too. Yeah, very satirical. We'll definitely talk about the director, Alexander Payne, and his contributions to bringing um, not just one, but several satirical and biting humor to his movies. Um, he certainly had a wonderful career. He's won a couple Oscars. I can't really ask for much more being a writer-director. Of course, we'll always talk about the cast. Uh, we'll always talk about the reception, marketing. And this this movie uh, is certainly interesting when it comes down to how to market a movie like this and an R-rated movie that stars mainly high schoolers and adults, but is primarily a high school movie. And a lot of different things that you might not even notice, like the set design and costuming and just kind of behind-the-scenes filming technique tidbits. Well, after our discussion on election, we'll get into our picks of the week. Uh, I chose uh, You Can Count On Me, a 2000 drama that also starred Matthew Broderick. And I went with a movie from 1988 that also stars Matthew Broderick, and that's called Biloxi Blues. I really enjoy that movie. I forgot. Yeah, I I had seen this movie when I was a kid, or at least it it was visually familiar to me, but completely forgot everything that's entailed in the film, and certainly glad that I revisited it. Well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but before we get into our first clip from Election, Lindsay, can you just give us the quick lowdown, your own interpretation of what this movie's about? You know I love to give breakdowns here, Justin. So Election is centered around a high school government election, as you might guess. The film follows an annoyingly eager overachiever named Tracy Flick and Mr. McAllister, a well-liked civics teacher who can't stand the sight of Tracy, let alone her irritating ambition. When McAllister enlists a popular football player to run in the election as a foil, this coincides with the footballer's sister seeking retribution, as well as McAllister being completely distracted by thinking about cheating on his wife. There's no shortage of moral and ethical dilemmas in this incredibly satirical teenage comedy. It's a very layered movie. There's so much going on. It's very fast-paced. It really is. For being just, a, I think it's about an hour and 40 minutes, it feels like a longer movie, but not in a bad way. It's almost just because there's so much information packed into it, and we'll get into how, how that happens and how the story's told, but it's really worthy of, of watching more than two times. Well, let's go to our first clip from election. We'll come back. We'll talk about it. Hi, Tracy. Who put you up to this? What do you mean? You just woke up this morning and suddenly decided to run for president? No. Um, no, I, I just thought that... Uh, thought what? Well, I was talking to Mr. McAllister about my leg and how I still want to do something for the school. And... So Mr. McAllister asked you to run? Well... Um, I, I talked to him and everything, but he just said that he thought it would be a good idea and how there's all different kinds of fruits and, um, and well, it's nothing against you, Tracy. I mean, you're the best. Uh, I, I just thought, um... Okay. You're on, Mr. Popular. You might think it upset me that Paul Metzler had decided to run against me, but nothing could be further from the truth. He was no competition for me. It was like apples and oranges. I had to work a little harder, that's all. You see, I believe in the voters. They understand that elections aren't just popularity contests. They know this country was built by people just like me who work very hard and don't have everything handed to them on a silver spoon. 
Not like some rich kids who everybody likes because their fathers own Metzler cement and give them trucks on their 16th birthday and throw them big parties all the time. No, they don't ever have to work for anything. They think they can just all of a sudden one day out of the blue waltz right in with no qualifications whatsoever and try to take away what other people have worked for very, very hard their entire lives. No, didn't bother me at all. So throughout Alexander Payne's career, he's worked closely with his constant collaborator, co-writing partner, Jim Taylor. And Election has such an original voice, it's easy to forget that the material did not come from them in the first place. That's very true. Uh, In fact, it came from a man named Tom Parada, who wrote this book about uh, 1993, or right around there was when he was writing it, and basically drew upon inspiration from two stories. One, that being the 92 presidential uh, election that was happening at the time, and if you were around then, I definitely remember this, was when Ross Perot came in as like the ringer, the one that wasn't expected, the the guy that wasn't a Democrat or, or a Republican, and came in as this independent candidate and really just threw off the game. Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, it was it's great. And it brings up the whole idea of having more than one choice, which is something that is talked about in election. Another facet of that was right around when uh, Clinton's kind of extramarital affairs started being brought up. And so this idea of being this salacious underbelly, you know, like there's all this other information that we don't know about coming out. So this was one inspiration. And then, which is pretty direct, if you look look at election and how it's set up, the other... And probably the most pointed one um, comes out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where in which a girl who was pregnant was elected homecoming queen. But I've seen this where Tom Parada said it was one guy, and then I read where it was staff. So I, I don't know if it was one guy or a staff or people agreed to burn the ballots on who was elected homecoming queen and elected someone else because they didn't want a pregnant homecoming queen. So you can definitely see where the inspiration for election came about just based on this information. So Tom Parada writes this. He gives the story to his agent, and his agent says, okay, I like it, but you know what? This isn't really, who's your audience? Like, what are you going for here? This is a little too scandalous for a teenage audience, and it's not quite adults. So why don't you just put this away for a little bit and we can come back to it another time. Write something else that's more palatable. So that's what he does. For the next four years, that just kind of sits literally in a drawer in his desk. He goes to a screenwriters conference a couple years later and I guess strikes up a conversation with another screenwriter and that person says, hey, let me get you in touch with a couple producers I know. This sounds like a really interesting script. Enter Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa, who would soon be the producers for election. They get a hold of this story and really think it is just a fresh take. This heartbreakingly funny uh, tale that's so relatable on a high school level, but then also is a small microcosm for the world. And it's just, I mean, who doesn't love a funny tale about the downfall of multiple people. So they get this and then they get a meeting. I'm not sure how this happens, but they get a meeting with David Gale from MTV Productions and MTV Productions had just made um, a decent amount of money off of Beavis and Butthead to America and Varsity Blues. But for the most part, they were a young production company, even though they were MTV. But still, they had the opportunity and the cash 
to put it into a production that was maybe a little bit meatier than the, I believe it was four or five previous movies that had come out um, before it. So we've got MTV on board, and then it was Albert Berger who happened to see Citizen Ruth around this time, which was Alexander Payne's film, and this was his last film before election, and saw this and just thought, oh my God, I mean, this is this is the guy. This is the guy we need for this movie. That movie was kind of on edge a little bit. It was very in your face, and he felt and really talked him up that Alexander Payne was the guy we need to take a chance on, and MTV, you guys, come on. If there's anybody, it's going to be you guys that's going to take a chance on a relatively up-and-coming, fresh new director. And once the producers uh, contacted Alexander Payne to hit him up to direct or adapt the novel Election, he wasn't interested at all. He didn't really want to do something that had to do with high school. Um, It just wasn't a genre, you know, high school kids, a genre that he had an interest in. But it wasn't until he read the novel that he totally changed his mind and realized this was really, really great material, very satirical, it was very up his alley. It wasn't long after that that him and Jim Taylor started uh, getting cracking on the script for election and putting their spin on the adaptation of the novel. And from what I can tell, it seems like the original novel Um, which was published actually in 98. So this movie came out in 99. It was published uh, before the movie came out, but the movie had already started rolling by this point. And the book was moderately successful. It, It received a lot of critical praise, but again, it got the same thing, which we'll talk about later in the reception of election. The movie didn't really know what the audience was exactly, but One thing that the movie kept from, and it kept a lot of things, obviously, from the book. The ending is different. We'll also get into that. But one facet that was so fascinating and really worked into the overall structure of the entire film was telling this movie from four different points of view. And the novel is written, like every chapter is written from one of these four characters' points of view. And that's Tracy Flick, the overachieving, like, do-gooder, who we could probably equate to being, like, a Hillary Clinton type. And the Paul Metzler, who is kind of, like, the softball, easy, kind of isn't, like, a lot of behind him, but, you know, he'll be fine <laughs> type of guy. And then we've got the Tammy Metzler, who is Paul Metzler's little sister, the sophomore, who is the Ross Perot type, we'll say. And then the fourth person, that being Jim McAllister, the civics teacher, Matthew Broderick, who is kind of the guy behind the scenes pulling the strings in some ways or has some way to control the outcome. And so that was one aspect that they kept and I think really translates visually so well in this film and through the story I, I kind of don't even know how this story would have been told with such depth if they hadn't broken it down by telling different things from different points of view. Yeah, I really do like that they chose to keep the point of view strongly throughout all four characters, not to just have it be from uh, Matthew Broderick's perspective. You know, I'm not a huge fan of voiceover, mainly in movies other than Goodfellas and Casino, obviously, that you know, we've covered both of those movies on this podcast. And when you watch Election, that's the first thing that kind of you think of it because uh, Alexander Payne, you know, uses freeze frame and voiceover in the same way that Scorsese does. But I honestly think that it works in this movie just as well as, as Scorsese's films. And I think that the use of voiceover really does 
help deliver a fast paced movie, but the information is so poignant and like strong that and and easy to follow really, to be honest, you never really feel lost. I mean, even though there's a lot of information coming at you, it's broken up in such a way that it's easy to, it's very clear. It's very clean. And I think it works so well. And I love the fact that Alexander Payne instituted some old style film techniques like the freeze frame and like the voiceovers. And, you know, he does wipes and doing, uh, you know, split screen. It just really, I think, helps keep the story visual because there is so much exposition. It's kind of funny because some of these things, whether it's the few times that we have some superimposition or even stock photos used, or extreme close-ups for dramatic effect. All of these things, in some ways, can be cheesy when used in in other ways. But for some reason, when you use all of them in this film, it is so deliberate. You leave it watching going, I I don't know how else you would have done it. Because it, it goes along, it's playing into the overall humor of the movie. But it's also helping tell the story. Even through flashbacks, and flashbacks can be cheesy too, but the flashbacks in this case are being done with a voiceover. I don't know, it's it's all so intertwined and well thought out that it just, um, this movie, it just helps with the richness of this movie. And to say that Election is layered and very thought out, I mean, you notice it. You notice it maybe on the third viewing, maybe not the first, but you go back and watch it, you really notice how much they're thinking about all the little details and not in a annoying way. It's just feels very intelligent. Yeah. And you make a good point about the, the, a lot of these techniques can be cheesy, but you, you know, you're right. It's, it's uh, Alexander Payne is so meticulous in his adaptation of the material from script to screen that it really does. Uh, even though the movie I think is, is visually drab, you know, it's a very cold looking movie. Um, You've got uh, cement walls, you know, a lot of cement walls in this high school. Yeah. And, you know, and the location lends to that, you know, yeah, you're in high schools, you're in uh, people's houses and, you know, it's not this big like visual feast for the eyes, but him using all these little techniques, I think it does make it visually interesting. But at the same time, a lot of the techniques are very, you know, seem kind of dated even for 1999. But when you watch it now, it does feel because you don't really see those things anymore. You don't see those techniques used. It, it feels kind of fresh now. And it it uh, it really does. Again, I you know said it before, but it really makes the movie move. And even though it's not a flashy film, making it that way, I don't think I'm giving them credit where it's not due or something, but I think making a, a film that's not flashy and looks drab, like you said, this is the idea of this dull life that all of these people are kind of existing in, but that bringing out the vibrant, twisted, kind of sick underbelly that is actually brewing under underneath everyone. Yeah. You know, whether whether it's Tracy Flick and like really that she's she's kind of a little demon a little bit, or it's Mr. McAllister who's deluding himself and that he's living a happy life when he's clearly not a happy man. Or, you know, uh, Paul and Tammy Metzler, they're the higher class of everyone, but they're also one's stifling down that she's gay and like not dealing with her gayness and the other one's like he's gonna you know that guy's gonna coast by on just being a good looking boy and there's really he's pretty dull you know (laughs) um but all of these factors like look at how much rich information we've already thrown out to you right now this is just 
talking about the beginning of this movie or how the movie is told. And there's just so much underneath it. Yeah. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the comedy with this because, you know, we, we do a lot of comedies on the podcast, but you and I definitely have a penchant for very dark humor. And certainly, even though I like dark humor, it's not like a laugh out loud kind of humor to me. Um, in the same way with Welcome to the Dollhouse, it's like sometimes the uncomfortablenesses yeah. that happen in, in sequences, they are very humorous to me, but it's not like a jokes landing. And election is is kind of like that for me i don't think the humor hits me as hard as it did now after a second or third viewing you know i, I laugh a little bit more but there, it, it is so dark you know because it you, you watch this movie and and a lot of it is you know if you if you really stop and think about it and that's why i like uh, dark humors because it is kind of depressing because you think like oh god you know am i like two steps away from like jim McAllister? <laughs> uh, but yeah you know, but then you laugh at the at the situations of of someone being so self destructive. You know, and there's that part of the brain that that makes you uh, laugh at it. But then there's also that part of the brain that um, where I think the dark humor comes from, where it's like it's almost comfort comforting to think like, well, at least I didn't screw up as bad as he did. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. And this can feel super jolting in a lot of ways, but at the same time as it can feel jolting, it can also feel really familiar. But like you said, you know, am I two steps away from being Jim McAllister? Maybe, but at least I'm not doing something that's that terrible. But the humor in this is super blunt. At the same time, having this compassion or caring or dignity behind it, but then conversely being completely ruthless and judgmental. Every character in this is is judging someone constantly. And if they're not judging someone, it's because they're too dense to do it or because they just don't care, which is a whole other facet of, of who these characters are. I think in 1999 it was edgy, but watching this movie in, in 2020, it walks a pretty delicate line, you know, when you're dealing with a teacher having sexual relations with a student. But this movie, I think, does a good job. The script in the movie does a good job of humanizing the characters. And don't get me wrong, I'm not defending Mr. Devotny's character for sleeping with Tracy Flick, Reese Witherspoon, but it does humanize his character and it doesn't portray her character as a total victim either. Like everybody in this movie has their problems, you know, they contradict themselves um, they cross moral and ethical lines, which I think is what the whole theme of the movie is. You know, it makes you think about uh, the difference between ethics and, and morals and, and how those lines can be blurred. And depending on who you are, you may bend further. And depending on the situation, you may not question those as much. In the same way, relating it to how we view uh, issues for elections, you know, I think it it really digs in deep on how, you know, our our sympathies and our morals can go stretch pretty far in one issue and then we can hold them back and have a pretty strong threshold for other issues. And I love the push and pull with that throughout this whole movie. And I also love, too, that it's not so heavy handed and in your face. There's certainly a couple lines that that, that can kind of like just jar you a little bit. But at the same time, I think <laughs> I have no that, idea what you're talking about. But, but at the same time, I really do think that this movie does this great job of like combining all of those themes and and keeping the tone dark and keeping the humor there, but also at the same time making the characters not wholly sympathetic, but you also don't think that they're monsters. And it is funny, really, that the only person 
that we feel sympathy for and is probably the most sympathetic is Tammy Metzler, who who's the younger sister, Paul Metzler, who just jumps into the election out of pure vengeance. But it's really she she doesn't care. In fact, when she gets up to give her speech on why she should be class president, which that entire scene is incredible, she says she's going to dismantle student government. What is fantastic, though, about that is that she's just trying to be a wrench in the wheel. But somehow this is the person who we have the most sympathy for at the end of the day. When her character, I think, is totally the most relatable I think when you're looking at all these characters, because she likes so many, and I think, you know, again, it's it's ref, a reflection of how we as a society function with elections. She's that kind of person that, you know, this isn't going to affect me too much either way. So I'm like undecided and I just, you know, I just want all this to stop. You know, I'm just sick of hearing about talking about the issues and, and everybody campaigning almost just like we just need to tear it all down and, and start over from scratch because like at the end of the day is any of this going to make a difference and <laughs> I, I think that that can be especially uh, you know when you're frustrated about politics Tammy Metzler is like a breath of fresh air you know? <laughs> yeah and, and, and not and not in like a, a libertarian sort of way you know one thing that I did find interesting when hearing Reese Witherspoon talk about how Alexander Payne directed her is that he would always use animal metaphors when instructing her on, you know, Tracy needs to act like she's a cat pouncing on a, her prey, you know, and you see that in whether it's Tracy's character or Tammy Metzler or just how people are inherently behaving in this ruthless kind of cutthroat. You you're just you're you're trying to win and you don't care what happens in the middle of this or you're in it for your own personal reason. But it's all very animalistic and it's all very selfish. And that can even extend to Mr. McAllister and how he's behaving and how he's kind of the same kid that never grew up, just like his former friend, Mr. Novotny, that had an affair with Tracy Flick. When I love that about this movie that we have the focus on the teachers, but it's not from the perspective of I got to teach these kids, you know, and it's they don't want to listen. And that it's also we have a perspective of the students, but we sort of have a backdoor into something that we normally don't see in a high school movie, you know, like the student body and, the, you know, an election is running. And I think this very much is a high school movie. But I do think it's it's wholly original because, again, we're, we have these different takes on characters, you know, faculty and staff and, and students that normally aren't the typical uh, storylines in a high school movie. And what's great about this, other than a sort of romantic interest of the two characters, uh, Novotny and, and Tracy Flick, that's not the central focus of the movie. And I love that because a lot of times I, I just feel like high school movies, you know, it's it's all about the budding romance and it's like first love. And I love those kind of movies, but I, I, I do love the fact that this particular high school story is, is told from a different perspective than, than what we've seen, you know, throughout the 80s and, and 90s. Another thing that it does is really illustrate the idea that we as adults are pretty much the same person that we were in high school. We just have life experiences to draw on and, you know, become wiser. But in the end, there's always going to be facets of our personality that are the exact same as when we were in high school to when we're 45, you know, or after. Again, 
We see that in Mr. McAllister. We see it in Mr. Novotny. If anything, it's one thing that I love so much about this movie is because you don't even notice that it's happening. But it's saying, in essence, we never really change, that we are the same person. Even at the very, my favorite scene of this movie is the very end section. And even there, we see it there that, that McAllister is the same and so is Tracy Flick. It's kind of chilling, really. To watch this movie <laughs> in your 20s and, and then watch it in your 40s. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's stop there. We'll go to another clip from Election. But when we get back, we'll talk about the cast, a little bit more about the characters. Uh, the location of this movie is very interesting. A little bit about the production design, more about the visuals of this movie. And then certainly about the reception, marketing, and, and how this movie uh, was received by audiences. All righty. Sounds good. We'll be right back. You know, instead of wasting your time interrogating me, we should be out there trying to figure out who did this. Okay, Tracy. Who do you think did it? Whom should we interrogate? Well, I don't know. You know, it could have been anybody. There's a lot of subversive elements here at Carver. Like Rick Thiessen or Kevin Speck and those burnouts. Or what about Tammy Metzler? I mean, her whole thing is being anti-this and anti-that. Tracy, you're a very intelligent girl. You have a lot of admirable qualities. But one day maybe you'll learn that being smart and doing whatever you need to do to get ahead, and yes, stepping on other people to get there, well, there's a whole lot more to life than that. And in the end, you're only cheating yourself. Why are you lecturing me? This isn't the time or the place to get into it. But there is, for just one example, a certain former colleague of mine who made a very big mistake, a life mistake. Now, I think the lesson here is that old or young, we all make mistakes. And we have to learn that our actions, all of them, can carry serious consequences. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're referring to, but maybe if certain older, wiser people hadn't acted like such little babies and gotten so mushy, then everything would be okay. I agree. And I also think that certain young and naive people need to thank their lucky stars and be very, very grateful that the entire school didn't find out about certain indiscretions that could have ruined their reputations and their chances to win certain elections. And I think certain older people, like you and your colleague, shouldn't be leching after their students, especially when some of them can't even get their own wives pregnant. And they certainly shouldn't be making slanderous accusations, especially when certain young, naive people's mothers are paralegal secretaries at the city's biggest law firm and have won many successful lawsuits. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. So if you've listened to our podcast before, you probably know that we love talking about cast. And Election, to me, is probably one of the most interesting cast movies of most any movie that we've done for this podcast. Um, simply because, one, you have a main character, uh, Jim McAllister, who's a character who's played by Matthew Broderick, who is playing off-type. We've got a star-making turn from Reese Witherspoon. Um, and then two unknown actors, I mean, really unknown, like before this, you didn't see them in any other movies, like kind of plucked from obscurity. And that's always fascinating and interesting to me. And a lot of that has to do with Alexander Payne and where he chose to shoot this movie. But we'll get into that a little bit. But for starters, uh, Matthew Broderick, you know, we were used to seeing him as like the, the cute, confident, 
a funny guy and he he just really <laughs> went for broke in this movie and, and played against type what was funny to me was learning that alexander payne claims he had never seen ferris bueller's day off before making this movie and still after it was already done still hadn't there's just something uh, i mean he was a film student and not that ferris bueller is like a movie that film aficionados need to see but i mean how do you just not happen into it it's, anyway it's hard for me to believe that he had never seen especially because he said he was such a big fan of matthew broderick it's like, i'm like what war games you're such a big fan of a guy that you never had a desire to see the movie that kind of made him famous but who knows who knows it's almost in some ways it's like ferris's downfall you know it's like if ferris never left high school and he ended up a teacher and like the exact opposite of what he wanted in his life. I mean, you know, if you want to think about it that way, but it was not intended for that. I do think that Matthew Broderick in this role, I wouldn't want to see anyone else. I would want to see someone that is his competent caliber of of acting that he can, he can pull off humor effortlessly. And he's also a very good actor in general so I, I want to see someone like him. I don't want to see just a face that's going to be like a marquee name. Not that Matthew Broderick's not a marquee name. He certainly is. But he's not going to be the guy that's going to, you know, get people to go, have you seen the new Matthew Broderick movie? <laughs> you know, like he's not that guy. But there's certainly like quite a few that I love when he's popped up in TV shows. Or, I mean, how many times can you and I bring up the cable guy like he's he's fantastic in that movie he's just kind of fantastic in general and i can understand why alexander payne was really gunning for for him to get this role and and didn't want someone of a larger stature or something or 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 something to some eye candy not that matthew broderick's not eye candy but he's certainly not in this movie they make him look schlubby and you can just tell by looking at him that he just like coasting by He's just not really happy with life, but he's fine. He's perfectly fine in quotations, but is he? (laughs) And I think that that's something that is visually very illustrated in his character and Broderick totally pulls it off. When I think he uh, works great for this movie too, because, because there is so much of his voiceover, he does have that very gentle, nice sounding voice. Yeah, true. And it makes later in the movie when he's just completely at at his wits end and he kind of explodes (laughs) on the kid Larry, you know, kind of unloads on him. His voice is just like so. Yeah, his his voice is like him swearing and like the aggression in his voice. You're just not used to hearing him sound like that. And because he had such a gentle, soft sounding, demeanored voice throughout the whole movie. Uh, that to me, just I get the biggest laugh out of that scene. Again, uh, you know, I said this in the last discussion, we don't necessarily feel sympathetic for him because he is so weaselly at times, but you don't hate him either. You know, he just really is a centerpiece of the movie opposite Reese Witherspoon, Tracy Flick. They just have such good chemistry. You know, it's just so perfect. And it makes sense because the, the script really brought Matthew Broderick in for a guy who is from the theater Having a story like this with a character who is so layered and so developed, I I can imagine reading this part and and being really enthralled with it and wanting it when you're Matthew Broderick, because it is a rich character and it's just something that's 
fun. Like you would want to play this when you're an actor, you know? And speaking of her, Reese Witherspoon, this woman, what she brings to this role, and she was so young, and and she'd been in films before this, certainly been a child actress, but what she brings to this role, between the nose flares and the clenched jaw, just everything that she's employing for this role is Tracy Flick. It's comical to watch while at the same time you you want to throttle her, but you also are like, holy crap, you're doing such a great job. <laughs> it's one of those characters that's kind of baffling because she is very frustrating, but at the same time, you know, you, you respect the fact that she's like working so hard and you feel empathy for her and you get what she's saying, you know, about it doesn't, it's not, you know, life's not fair. Like I can work as hard as I can, but I'll be judged accordingly because I don't have money or because I'm a woman or because, you know, society's, you know, high school pecking order is not designed a certain way. You're rooting for her, but then at the same time, you, you see that she's a very manipulating character. And Reese Witherspoon just does that so well where she can turn it on and off between really being, you know, super on point and trying to get what she wants and then also you know you see her in another scene and she looks like you know a a, a troubled lost high school student no i've thought about her character a lot in all of these revisits there's a part of me that appreciates how and even mr McAllister says that he you know admires how steadfast and how committed she is and everything to do with what makes her so dedicated. There's something that I was noticing in like doing research on this that there are some people that were saying that there really wasn't any depth behind her, that it was just uh, all stemming from her mom. And these were scenes that were kind of cut out were showing that her mom really kind of instilled these ideas into her, these like steadfast, like single mom you know, her mom basically living through her and that Tracy really didn't have that within her. I didn't really find that necessarily to be true, at least in in my experience of Tracy. And whatever was cut out that might have gone along with that, I'm glad that it was because the version that I get of Tracy is being a climber. And whether or not she really believes in what she's saying, she is passionate and she is going for it, and she's going to mow over anybody um, who gets in her way. And and there is something that is admirable in a way about that quality, even if that's something that is is not really your speed. I can admire it, uh, unless of course you're the victim. But right, the way, <laughs> but the the way in which Reese Witherspoon executes this role, she did spend. I mean, it's not like the woman didn't go to high school, but she did spend two weeks in in the high school that they filmed in with the kids that were there, kind of like getting the feel of being back in high school. And it's not like she was that far out of being in high school, really. But she had so much dedication to this character, and she walked in. Evidently, she walked right into the audition, just owning it. And Alexander Payne thought that, well, that's Tracy Flick. The The confidence that that woman just exuded was Tracy Flick. And also Lisa Beach, who was the casting director, said that finding Reese Witherspoon for this role is like one of her greatest accomplishments. And man, yeah, you think of you, you can say the name Tracy Flick to someone. And if they've seen election, like they know exactly yep. who you're talking about. Well, I like to uh, briefly talk about the other two main cast members to round us out. These are the two I mentioned that were plucked from obscurity. That's Chris Klein and Jessica Campbell, who play Paul and Tammy Metzler. 
what a what a brother sister duo. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> and uh, first off, with Jessica Campbell, the Tammy Metzler character, who you know uh, we both agree is one of the most relatable and and probably one of my favorite characters in this movie. She originally was played by Thora Birch, who at the time was probably one of the more well-known actors to be attached to the project. But there were some creative differences between Thora Birch and Alexander Payne. And so he opted to go with a different actor, even though they're already pretty close to production. It kind of rattled some producers because they were like, I don't know, you know, is this the best choice? And then on top of it all, he wanted to go with an unknown. Jessica Campbell, I think, had been in one tiny professional production, but she'd sent in a tape. She was living in in St. Louis. uh, Shout out to our hometown here. And uh, was at Webster Groves High School and then uh, sent in a a tape and he he loved it. And she ended up getting cast off of a a VHS uh, audition tape, which I think is just such a great story. And it's, it's a bummer that she, you know, hasn't been in in a lot of movies because she has just such a great natural presence in this and adds a lot of humor and a lot of dignity and just gave such a great, raw, interesting performance. And there's a lot to be said for her character in general, the way that Jessica Campbell plays it. As someone who was gay in high school and also trying to stifle that or not really admit that to myself around about the same age as she was really, I think I was a freshman. She's a sophomore in this movie. The same thing. Like I, I see her character and I was doing the same thing saying, I'm not gay. I don't know what you're talking about. Just like, whatever. I've just like been attracted to women. It doesn't make me gay that, I mean, I know that's coming from the writing standpoint, but the way that she's playing it is, I mean, I, I just feel such a kinship with it. And there is such an abandonment that comes with that when you are faced with, you know, figuring out who you are and this identity struggle in some ways of just completely not giving a shit. So when she joins in on, you know, vying for president of the uh, high school and she's a sophomore, not even a senior, like she just doesn't care. And there's so much abandonment in that. And it's very empowering, but it's also such a young feel. And the way that she does it, I think the fact that she was a green actor and hadn't had, you know, the screen experience before, I think I I couldn't think of a better person to play the role of like a 15, 16 year old in doing that role. And she did it so awesomely. Yeah. And finally, to round things out with the main cast, there's Chris Klein, who, uh, exactly like Jessica Campbell, was not a professional actor quite yet, sort of taken from uh, everyday life and, and, and put into a studio movie. In fact, Alexander Payne was still scouting schools in the area and was at Millard West High School and just happened to see Chris Klein coming out of a weight room, I think, and the principal... Um, was like, oh, hey, this kid was in all of our plays before. I think he had graduated, I think, or was a senior. And you should talk to him. Talk talk to him about being in the movie. And Alexander Payne just couldn't get Chris Klein out of his brain. There was just some realness and innocence to, you know, seeing Chris Klein. And, I mean, he does, especially at that time in his life, you know, he was, like, pretty oafy, pretty, you know, like, lumbering, like sweet looking boy who was like kind of dumb looking not in a bad way just like 
you know, I'm not trying to insult Chris Klein here, but he did have this lack of irony in his appearance, you know, and I think that really comes through in his performance. He seems naive, but doesn't seem like a stereotypical high school jock character. Yeah, there's a niceness to him, which is certainly needed for that Paul Metzler role. So what a lucky break, man. Oh, yeah. And uh, just a couple quick mentions. A lot of the comic relief in this movie, there's uh, Phil Reeves, who plays Principal Hendrix, <laughs> and yeah. his some of his reactions and the way he <laughs> deals with situations that are stressful. Just I, I get the biggest laughs out of his portrayal of the principal. He's such a good principal, isn't he? Just like between mannerisms, the way that he's just posturing He's so good at just being like this man that's trying to be in charge, but really has no power behind him, but like does, but he's just kind of impotent in some way. And uh, also Mark Herlick, who plays Dave Novotny, his, I get the biggest laugh from him too, when he's in the principal's office and uh, you know, he's, he's crying and he says, we're in love. It just, uh, it's so cringe inducing and like funny and the reaction of the principal did you cross the line with this girl i mean it's it's so perfect you know and it's it's such a good way to basically exit his character from the movie you know just the perfect scene yeah it really is and uh let's see delaney driscoll who plays his wife I get why, you know, I get why Mr. McAllister is going after her, but she, her performance as well as uh, Diane McAllister, Molly Hagan, they're, I mean, they, they serve their roles. They're great in their performances and certainly make you feel some uh, sympathy for how both of their husbands have been terrible to them. And finally, kind of like the last two that I throw in, Lisa, who plays the uh, love interest of Tammy Metzler, Frankie and Gracia. She certainly serves a good purpose in this role. And I think in some ways is the epitome of a high schooler. Like I look at her and it's like that is the exact replica of what I remember, like stereotypical high school girl. That's her. Totally. And Colleen Camp, who's been in a million things over like my entire lifetime, I know the woman's face. Colleen Camp plays Tracy's mom. I feel like whatever scenes of hers were cut out were probably wonderful and really enriched, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like the entire story. But I get why they were cut out. But Colleen Camp turning in a solid performance as an uptight mom that's um, probably, uh, you know, instilling some, some uh, future bad things for her daughter. Yeah. She's been in so many movies, too. So a lot of uh, what we like about this movie is the movie feels very realistic and not just in the way characters interact and, and, and their reactions to things, but in the style of the movie and the way it looks like a real high school in the Midwest. A lot of the extras are, are local and uh, Alexander Payne grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. He shot Citizen Ruth there. And uh, when he was able, you know, got the budget for this movie, you know, convinced the studio to say, hey, you know, I also want to shoot this in a real high school in Omaha, Nebraska. Not only that, this high school that they shot in was actually functioning while they were shooting. So there was actually classes going on during the same time that they were shooting their scenes. Uh, they said there was actually even some bleed over of, of, people you know high school noises happening in the in the background on the soundtrack it gives such a sense of realness to it it's very much 
something that Alexander Payne likes to do. He likes having a sense of realness, like this documentary journalism style of actually capturing the reality of something. And I'm a huge fan over anything else, really, of of capturing something in a movie that feels like a real moment. Because so often, I mean, I, I love things that feel fantastical, too. But when you're telling a story that's so humanizing and supposed to be so relatable I want it to feel real but not necessarily like a documentary and I think Alexander Payne really rides that line so well and using studied actors and real folks crossing that over and mixing them up so you kind of like don't know who's who but that everyone's making everyone look better it's kind of brilliant I like just even the um the yearbook sequence that they use just looks so authentic to yearbooks of that time time frame and the way that that scene's put together and just all the students that are in the background, even though you have Reese Witherspoon there, it just, again, makes it very authentic. And I love that these real characters, it's not, you know, the typical nerd or the jock or whatever. It, it just sort of like how high school looks if you just like looked down the halls and you see kids running out, the energy of, of what happens when the class is over feels very real. It doesn't feel like a movie that's trying to isolate certain classes or groups of people to say, now here's the cool kids coming out and they're walking down the hall in slow motion. There's none of that stuff. And and again, (laughs) uh, same with you. You know, I like fantastical movies and stuff too, but when a movie is about an honest portrayal of a high school, them going for real students and and keeping the extras, um, even some with tiny speaking roles, just students that happen to lived in that town and and were going to high school at the same time and saying, hey, we'd rather have a real student playing, even all the way down to the janitor, you know, that was the janitor, I think it, Alexander Payne sent the janitor at his office, they used him for the janitor in the high school. Isn't that nutty? Like the teachers you see in it were actual teachers. In outside of the high school, we also get a glimpse of the production design of a movie trying to really show that this is a, a Midwest feel. I've only been to Omaha, Nebraska once. Hadn't been there when I saw this movie for the first time. And nothing in the, at least to me as is, is, is a person who, there's nothing immediately that screams, this is Omaha. You know, this is downtown Omaha, but it does scream to me, this is a Midwestern location. Uh, this is a, a smaller city. Um, this isn't uh, Los Angeles or New York or some bustling city. Even all the way down to the houses that the Novotny and, and McAllister live in, the production design is, you know, they dress things in a very economical way of like, this is how, you know, if, if a guy made $40,000 a year teaching yeah. and yeah. his, you know, and, and they had a kid and his wife wasn't working, this is the house that they could afford. And this is, it's different from like a, a movie like Heat or something where everything is so stylized in the production design where you're like, man, how much does a detective make? This guy's got like a $5 million house. Like, Everything looks like very, it's like very close detail to what these characters would own and where they would be in their life as far as like their material possessions or their car, um, which can say a lot about a person. You know, if someone has, is driving a BMW, any car can get you from A to B if it's a new car, but going to get a, you know, $80,000 car versus a economic car. And I think- You mean a Ford Fiesta? Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. But but that, but it really immediately when you see him in that little car, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it feels real. I forget what Alexander Payne said about the Ford Fiesta, but it was it made me crack up. He was like, 
the the man who's just scraping by with a Ford Fiesta. And another thing he said about that car, since you brought it up, like he said that he hates when cars are clean in movies. He's like, that's just not how it is. Like they're dirty. Like you're unless you're someone that's obsessed with your car, it's going to be dirty on the outside. And these minor attentions to detail like the car, you know, like Mr. McAllister's sheets where we see him having sex with his wife and they're like they're having sex to just have a baby like the sheets on their bed I didn't even need to be told this but just looking at their sheets they're just so devoid of personality and just scream there's no real passion there's no real emotion here and their their whole house is like very cold feeling versus you know the Novotny house where you know, their marriage broke up due to Mr. Novotny and Tracy Flick. But yet, you know, there's still a certain warmth there. There's something there that's making Jim gravitate towards it, something that is missing in his life. And that's very much illustrated in what we see around them. And there are so many of these little visual cues. And I'm not just talking like the idea of Omaha being a character itself or Papillion La Vista High School like being a character by itself. But I mean, what the is simply in like what the characters are wearing, like all of these things that are surrounding them. Sure, they create this atmosphere, but it was surprising to me the attention to detail that was really put into Mr. McAllister, Matthew Broderick's character. And you see the idea of all these circles that are following him, whether it's on his ties or his pajamas or that he's running a track or that there's one complete tracking shot of him making a giant circle. And all of this is meant to visually show us what we're also trying to say in the narrative. And that is Jim is chasing his tail. He's not ever going to get ahead He keeps on doing the same, same thing. I I think it's really brilliant. And whether or not you get it, you know, on on watching it, because I think it is something that you can completely miss. I do admire the fact that Alexander Payne wanted to do it. It just makes the movie that much deeper. You add this visual component. I think probably the most obvious, and I, again, something you could completely miss, but it is in every, I don't know, 10th shot probably you watch this movie look for trash look for a trash truck look for someone throwing something away look for anything involving trash because there's a whole theme behind this movie of throwing your life away throwing something away that you really shouldn't be just basically trashing your life and again It's not something you need to enjoy this movie, but it is something that is a theme that is under the entire film that people are just constantly throwing things away that they really shouldn't be. And we also, in these same scenes, see how they could not do that at the same time. Yeah, Alexander Payne, so much more a meticulous director than what I I think I gave him credit for. Like after listening to his commentary and and watching this movie multiple times, it was very dedicated to this movie. I I think he spent, you know, I think you told me it was like a year editing this movie. It's like a year and a half. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, It's crazy. Yeah. And one aspect probably that goes in with Alexander Payne and his training and going to film school Um, He said that he opted for UCLA because, in his opinion, it was one school that taught everything, taught, taught you 
not just writing, directing, like it taught you everything and wanted you to choose your own path. Now, this is when he was in school, but he said his interpretation was that when he went to school versus other schools that he had been accepted to that wanted you to go down, you know, particular paths that you showed particular interest in and kind of funneled you into that area. I think that having, you know, overall idea of wanting to be writer and director and be being interested in all of these other facets really shows in his work. And he also has a journalism background and I, you know, I got to give props to that anytime I see it. And this movie for for him really blew his career up. I mean, he was nominated for an Academy Award for a best adapted screenplay. And though Election wasn't necessarily a big hit with audiences at the time, I think its appreciation has grown over time. It was a big hit with critics. Um, You know, everybody really appreciated the fact that this was such a smart and satirical high school comedy, uh, something that really wasn't around at that time period. And though this was such an original movie, it also made it extremely hard to promote from the studio. And so they had this really well-acted, great movie that critics loved, but they just didn't really know how to promote the movie. And even uh, going back and watching the trailer here the last week for it that they put out, you can kind of see that there it was, it was a tough sell because the trailer didn't really capture a lot of the dark humor that was in the movie. Uh, it it seemed almost like they were trying to play the trailer pretty broad, but I get that, you know, from a, a marketing standpoint, I guess, you know, you, you want to try to make it a movie that's going to appeal to as many people as possible. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the difficulty that comes when you have a movie that has an equal amount of teenagers and adults, but also in a, a movie like this, there's a certain element of intelligence behind it. So that's going to be pretty different in how you choose to market it. It's going to be more of a broad thing. And I honestly, I don't know how I would have cut a trailer for this either. It probably would have been super dark because the the bleak and dark humor in this is, is everywhere. And I can imagine wanting to play that up in a trailer, but I could also imagine wanting no one to know that until you're actually there. Like you said, the initial reviews for this movie were amazing and it was getting universal acclaim, but the marketing just wasn't there. And while this movie wasn't a complete box office bomb, I mean, it technically wasn't a bomb. It made back the money that it was put into the budget, but it it could have done better. And I think it deserves to have done better in that initial release. But it probably wouldn't have done as well as it did if it weren't for Sherry Lansing, who I know is an actress growing up, but she did end up being like a very successful um, president of uh, and CEO of Paramount Pictures and 20th Century Fox. She saw this and really started pushing for the movie to be seen. And after she started really trying to get people interested in this, Pretty much overnight, that happened. Producers started contacting Alexander Payne and the production crew and like how to get this movie seen. And it was shown at the opening of the San Rafael Film Theater, the opening of that. And then there was a premiere at the Egyptian Theater. So it turned into a big deal, but it also didn't have the campaign of promotion behind it to 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 fuel you know a premiere so in some ways like that is why it wasn't bigger than what what it should have been but it's still like i said made back the money that it was put into the budget 
And I think if anything, with each year that passes, people are going to rediscover this movie and see its brilliance and gosh, just how relatable it is even 20 years later. And even though uh, Alexander Payne didn't uh, quite reach the the heights of his success with Election, even though I, I still think it's his best film, um, four or five years after this, he did end up winning that Academy Award for Sideways, and, and that movie became, for, for a modest budget and a movie about... Uh, Two guys hanging out in wineries was sort of a smash hit, made like a hundred million dollars. I got to revisit it. I don't remember being too into it when it came out, but I got to take another look. I actually kind of want to watch all his movies after putting all this time with Election and and learning about him. Well, I think that's a good spot to stop there. Uh, we'll come back we'll, with a couple final thoughts on Election, but let's move on to our picks of the week. Lindsay, you went the Broderick route again with Bloxy Blues. What can you tell me about that movie? All you got to say is Mike Nichols directed something written by Neil Simon, and chances are I'm going to watch it. The movie starts out with the line, It was the fifth day of the army, and so far, I hated everyone. It's hard to believe these guys had mothers and fathers who were worried about them. Biloxi Blues stars Matthew Broderick and Christopher Walken with an admirable small appearance by Penelope Ann Miller, and it follows an army platoon in basic training all drafted during the final year of World War II and led by an off-kilter sergeant, Christopher Walken, who comes into play at multiple points in the film. The story is semi-autobiographical, so there's kind of a reason you can't deny the truthfulness you feel along every step of the way. Because these soldiers really only saw basic training, it could feel like Simon is negating the grittier aspects of being in the army, but after serving his time, this was the tale that Neil Simon wanted to tell. But the army experience, quote-unquote, is not the real point of Biloxi Blues. While this is an ensemble movie, everything we see is from Matthew Broderick's Eugene Jerome's perspective— his inner musings and assessments of the men in his company. It's honest, humorous, and obvious that he feels fairly confident in that no one will ever read the private journal that he's scribbling in the entire movie. As we might assume, the broiest of the men in his company decide to read that journal out loud. And you may think that this could go super poorly, but what's most surprising to me is how it's handled with a lot of things in this movie. What's contained in Jerome's journal is sobering and legit observations, nothing with malice, and really just every man in the room listening until the truth becomes uncomfortable. Jerome is this observer, but he needs to be involved. He'll never become the writer he dreams about until he actually puts himself out there, makes a stand for himself or anyone else. As his best friend in his platoon says, he has to make a contribution, be a team player, don't be selfish or erratic or else you'll be found out. You gotta think about the bigger picture. Going along with this theme and Jerome's musings is him actively trying to lose his virginity. And again, with kind of this idea of things happening and you getting the opposite reaction that you expect, there's no real shame exhibited on screen because he's still a virgin. And he does clumsily succeed in losing his virginity before finding Penelope Ann Miller, who helps him differentiate between the feelings of love and sex. And it might be fleeting love, but there's something even more romantic about the understood notion of knowing something must come to an end, especially because of war. And this idea of connection not only happens with Miller's character, but with Jerome's platoon. There are plenty of heartwarming moments in Biloxi Blues, but it's not overly sweet. It doesn't contain that goofball humor of Stripes, which I love so much. I love that movie. You know that, Justin. But in comparing these two 
Army basic training movies, they are starkly different. It comes in earnest ways, sure, through the loss of virginity, the men in Jerome's company reading his journal, but the uncomfortability which occurs when finding out something you don't agree with. The sense of narking on your friends or learning how to process something completely foreign and out of your comfort zone. Lessons are learned in this movie, no doubt. There's one plot point which I won't give up, but it results in Jerome having realizations about his own judgments and the idea that when you write something down, it becomes automatic fact. Above all else, Jerome learns some serious lessons on responsibility and assessment. Of course, Broderick is the lead as Jerome, but everyone's purpose in the story is admirably served. From Christopher Walken's atypical sergeant role to Jerome's main Jewish cohort played by Corey Parker and every single buddy in his company. There's a true sense of camaraderie in this movie, but you may also notice that there are only two women in this film and they're fairly one-dimensional, but again... All these characters are being shown through Jerome's eyes. His platoon friends are fairly compartmentalized, as are the two women. Miller's playing this sweet, demure, idealized version of a woman. And then you've got Rowena, played beautifully with that southern raspy voice, Park Overall, as the extreme opposite of Miller. And she's the professional madam to whom Jerome loses his virginity. Simon adapted his own play uh, for the screen which is why I feel like this movie retains the utmost integrity and never really wavers. Biloxi Blues is an army movie that plays on nostalgic sensibilities, but it isn't likely to drudge up bad memories for anyone. If anything, I would hope it would serve as a heartfelt comedy and reminder of the positive growth one can sustain when going through a major event in your youth. Even if you might not have liked what you went through, it was the endurance of youth, the experience you shared with people going through it with you. There's something really special about Biloxi Blue, so seek it out if you can. It's really worth your time. I got to revisit that one. I, I, I loved that movie when I was growing up, but I have not seen it in probably 15 years or so. It's really simple, but I, I appreciate the spirit behind it. There's just, yeah, there's a certain simplicity and magic kind of behind it. I don't want to say magic. It's not like Stand By Me or something, but it has that same just heartfelt vibe yeah. behind it. All right, your turn. I want to hear about You Can Count On Me. Well, You Can Count On Me is also a very simple story. It came out in 2000, and in my personal opinion, I think this is one of the best post-90s films that that came out, especially for a drama. It was written and directed by playwright Kenneth Lonergan. This was his first feature film, and he's really only written and directed a handful of movies, I think this being one of the best. And uh, again, a very simple story of a brother and sister who's, who's parents are killed in a car accident in the beginning. And so they grow up without their parents and have to learn to uh, count on each other for companionship and, and leaning on each other for problems. Now we don't see them growing up in the movie. We just see the car accident in the beginning. And then it cuts to them as, as adults. And Laura Linney is now a, a single parent raising her son played by Rory Culkin. And she's stayed in her hometown. She's she's still living in the house that she grew up in as a kid, and her brother is coming for a visit. He's played by Mark Ruffalo. When they first meet up, she's very excited. She's She you know loves her brother. She hasn't seen him. She's been worried about him, and immediately you can kind of tell that he's the total opposite of her. You know, he's been on the road. He kind of drifts in and out of her life, 
and generally only comes around when he needs money or he needs some sort of help. They come to blows at first about it, but then eventually, due to circumstances, he decides to stay with her for a while in this town that he kind of despises in the way he hates it. It's a small town and everybody knows everybody. But at the same time, you can tell that he finds some comfort in that and he finds some comfort in uh, reconnecting with his sister and also starting to become some sort of uncle to her son who hasn't seen him in in several years. When you read the sort of tagline to this movie, it doesn't seem like much, but this is one of the just most richly acted dramas that I've seen in a long time. And uh, Mark Ruffalo and Laura Linney are just so perfect in this. They're heartbreaking, they're honest, uh, they seem like real people, and it, it really it, it it tugs at your heartstrings, and it 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 can be a tearjerker. But I don't think in like an overly manipulating way. You learn to love these characters. They're very very relatable, you know, in family and how we grow apart from our family. But you always are going to lean on your family for help. You know that your family's for the most part always there for you. There's a lot of little points in this movie that, that I think a lot of people will find very personal. And there's a lot that's revealed in the characters throughout the script. It's it's very subtle and it's and it move it's it's a very slow moving movie. You know, there's there's not a whole lot that happens, but it is a movie much like election where there's characters who kind of contradict each other and you kind of feel at any moment they can they're going to, you know, sort of impulsively make the wrong move and, and ruin their lives. And um, Matthew Broderick, kind of, he comes into play in this movie as a very, I would say, like annoying and micromanaging bank manager. He sort of takes over uh, the bank that Laura Linney has been working at for a while. Matthew Broderick starts cheating on his wife with Laura Linney. It's, it's a movie about broken relationships. It's a movie about people who are reevaluating their lives and trying to figure out what their next step is. This movie kind of hit me hard because it's a movie that you watch and you think, you know, there's never, there's never really a time in your life that you can't stop and kind of question, you know, where you came from, uh, who your friends are, you know, who you can depend on and are you happy in, in what you're doing and, and are the only things that's, that are stopping you from being happier is your own self. And, uh, it really is. A, it's a movie that can be depressing at times, but there is some humor in it as well. But overall, I can't say it enough. It's just it's one of the best dramas that I've seen in the last 20 years. And it, it bums me out that this is a movie that I just I, I talk, ask people about it. And like no one knows what this movie is um, and you don't really hear about it too often. So um, please, if you haven't heard of it and if you haven't seen it, check out You Can Count On Me. I, I can't. This is, I would say, um, amongst we've done how many episodes 60 something episodes uh this is probably one of the most biggest recommendations i can give for a, a movie that that has not been seen very much dang dude that's saying a lot <laughs> um and the way that you describe this just that that sense of darkness but also something that you can relate to in it man i'm all over this i think it's on showtime right now i'm a really big fan of laura linney and I love seeing Matthew Broderick in non-comedic roles. And when I was just looking over the pictures uh, while you were talking about it, yeah, he looks uh, looks kind of scummy. (laughs) His character very much mirrors that of Election. I can see why he jumped from this movie to to that one so easily. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. I'm going to check this one out. Yeah, I hope I wasn't too vague in my description. I was, it was This is a personal movie for me, so it was like harder to talk about than other picks of the week. 
But uh, those thank those you for are, sharing, Justin. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I can get sentimental and sensitive on this uh, podcast every now and then. Yeah, we do. You know. um, but those are our picks of the week. You can count on me and Biloxi Blues. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Now, Justin, it was pretty serendipitous that you did You Can Count On Me as your pick because this election Murray moment led me straight to the film that Laura Linney and Bill did together in 2012, Hyde Park on Hudson, which I greatly enjoy every time I've seen it. And even if historical recountings aren't your favorite thing, this movie is a whole different animal. It's like two stories woven together. Hyde Park on Hudson is about Queen Elizabeth and King George VI of England visiting stateside to see Eleanor Roosevelt and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which is played by Billy. This was the first time the royals had stepped foot in America and did so in order to see if the U.S. would be an ally and what would soon become World War II. Much of the story is told through the eyes of Daisy Sukley, Roosevelt's cousin, played by Laura Linney, with whom Roosevelt shares a surprisingly close relationship, as he did with many women who weren't his wife, Eleanor. If you want to talk about this movie, feel free to drop us a line and we can go more in depth. But for this Murray moment, let's just focus on Billy and his true-to-life performance of President Roosevelt. Sure, he's played plenty of presidents and real-life folks in SNL sketches or late-night talk shows, but this was a big undertaking. First of all, this script got to Billy by way of a props girl that had worked on Morning Glory, which was the uh, film that Roger Mitchell had done um, and who also directed Hyde Park. Billy was the only person Mitchell had in mind for who he thought could match the president's mischievousness and charm, since both men kind of share the same qualities. Of course, you know, it took over a year to finally get that confirmation of, yes, Raj, I'm totally in. But Bill was on board and admired Mitchell's follow-through, even if he was first bewildered as to why he was chosen. But he certainly became interested in uh, doing this film just based on the publicly known historical events and the secret diaries of Daisy Sukley. Though it was known but intentionally not shown by the press, Roosevelt dealt with the everyday effects of having had polio. So this meant weeks worth of rehearsal for Billy, learning how to walk with crutches, leg braces, how to be carried, basically using only your upper body strength, driving a for real amended car as Roosevelt did, and even meeting polio victims. Even though Billy had some experience with this, as his younger sister Laura had been afflicted way back when they were kids. I wanted a real FDR boot camp, said Mitchell. I had to walk around with all these braces on, Bill said. So it was uncomfortable and sort of inhibiting your body. You had to be in your body while it was being tortured. 
After learning more than he ever knew, understanding the silent pain of what his sister and FDR went through, apparently, Billy called his sister up a few days into production and expressed just how sorry he was that he never truly understood what she went through growing up. Not only challenging himself physically, but Billy also had to absorb Roosevelt's voice and accent in a natural way versus just doing an impression. Mitchell certainly noticed the sincerity in taking on this challenging role. Bill took this part with appropriate gravity and seriousness, he said. He was scared enough by it to realize he wasn't going to, nor did he want to, just show up and do another Bill Murray turn. Even Hyde Park's writer, Richard Nelson, felt that Bill's depth of soul lent him to be the only person for this role. After a ton of research, Billy came to understand what Mitchell saw in him. There was something incredibly charming about Roosevelt. He had a way of making people feel special and giving them their time to shine, even if he was, you know, being secretive in some sly way on the side. Roosevelt got elected four times, after all. That's got to say something about how people believed in him. You've got to have a twinkle in your eye to make people do what you want them to do, Bill said of Roosevelt. And he had a brilliant smile and a way of engaging people and getting them to feel appreciated. I tried to think about how he would deal with his personal life in a way that would get everything done while acknowledging everyone's point of view. The man's always tried to be loose in his acting approach. So what was one big help in playing Roosevelt? Well, Billy employed some advice his old friend and Second City director, who I've talked about in previous Murray moments, Del Close, had imparted to him years ago. Del would say, you wear your characters like a trench coat. You're still in there, but there's like a trench coat. So, Bill continued, I figured it was like a big winter trench coat because there was a little bit more of the character in this one that comes to the party, so I did a lot more reading and a lot more studying. Playing a real-life person has additional challenges going beyond just the portrayal, especially playing someone like the President of the United States, or really any well-known figure. There's always going to be a good chance you're going to run into relatives of these people somewhere along the line, Bill explained. And I've played a couple of real people, and it's a responsibility. You feel like you have to work a little harder to get their best side. You almost have to be their friend, in a way. I have to acknowledge their best qualities and celebrate them. Bill's co-stars also seemed to be glowing when it came to speaking about him. Of course, he had worked with Olivia Williams, who played Eleanor Roosevelt before on Rushmore, and Laura Linney had nothing but praises to sing for the man, as did Samuel West, who played King George VI, who even said that the way that Bill toyed with lines was inspiring to him. Instead of sitting there and obediently just saying lines, he sort of altered or played with them, which was throwing, but in a good way, because when it comes to your close-up, you should be reacting to what's happening in front of you. And because Bill was playing with his responses and slightly surprising me, it was much fresher, West said. Perhaps the most adorable admiration came from Olivia Coleman playing Queen Elizabeth, who said that she was just bowled over with excitement to meet Bill. I can't do cool, she said. If I'm really excited, I get all gummy and grinny. He's just brilliant and so much fun. You hear so much music between when they're setting up for the next scene because he brings along a huge stereo and plays music for everybody. He's just a really lovely presence. I hope for some of you out there, I've piqued your interest in uh, seeking out this film, which oddly feels really low-key, yet what is contained in the story is such a huge part of history and a more scandalous part of FDR's life. People ask, did this really happen, Bill said? Well, you know, you read the diaries, it's very clear what happened. Writing changes, you read stuff later when we're at war and he's not telling his wife and he's not telling his cabinet. They don't know where he is. 
but he's sending messages by courier to Daisy Sukli every day. This girl was a vault. I love that expression. She's the vault. He could tell her anything. Between Billy's truly inspired performance as Roosevelt and their revelations about his relationship with Daisy Sukli, this should be enough to engage anyone. It isn't a dusty historical presidential drama. There's a lot contained within the story, and everyone involved pulls it off expertly. I hope Billy's really proud of this role. Um, I think it adds a lot of depth to his entire body of work. Yeah, I got to say, out of all the later day Bill Murray movies, this is one of the few that I hadn't seen. So I'm I'm curious to uh, check this out now that you've talked about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. You can borrow it if you want. I forget if it's streaming anywhere right now, but you can definitely borrow it sometime. It was one I think the trailer didn't really do much for me when it came out, but I, I can't say that I really uh, gave it too much thought. But I, I should go ahead and watch this movie. It honestly, it didn't do much for me either. And then I just was like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta buy this one and see it and then watched it and was like, oh crap, this is, this is way not what I thought it was going to be. This is okay. This is pretty good. And there's little twinges of humor in there too. And it's totally through the director's point of view. It's, it's a, it's a great movie to watch. Yeah. You've got my interest peaked. I gotta, I gotta check that one out. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Uh, of course. Anytime. We should probably wrap things up here. Just one last thing on election that that we didn't quite get to before we rounded out our final discussion was the ending of election was reshot. And I think we both agree it was for the better. Yes, I definitely agree. The original ending, you can see it is readily available, not on like a full cut of the movie or anything, but you can you can find it. It certainly, I, I think initially it didn't test well, isn't that correct? It felt like tonally it didn't match with how yeah. the rest of the movie had been. Like it, it, it matched the book and how, how, how the book ended, but it just didn't match the movie in general. Yeah, and in the uh, original ending that they ended up reshooting, uh, Mr. McAllister sort of makes up with Tracy and apologizes for the ruining the election for and then uh ends up signing her yearbook i I get i get tonally how it's just i don't know that it did that wouldn't have felt like a satisfying ending no not at all and the way that this movie ends is one of my favorite things about it alexander payne saying at the end of the movie anytime you have a protagonist running away from the camera um humiliated (laughs) with someone screaming you asshole (laughs) like it kind of epitomizes everything about the movie and it's just so much contained in such a such a switch in tone because yeah. we have we have Matthew Broderick he's still the same guy maybe grown a little bit more and saying you know I'm over what happened but then it just takes one little thing to flip a switch And it is all fresh and right there. And it goes back to the theme that we talked about before and that we don't ever really change. Even though we try to grow as people, we still harbor something that is that ingrained in us. Yeah. And I also, too, like that the new ending, we we see that this election wasn't the the end of, of Tracy Flick. You know, this was, you know, it devastated her, but... She she got over it pretty quickly and went on to bigger and better things. And Mr. McAllister wasn't like a big thing to her, you know, whereas 
the original ending, you know, it meant something to her that he would sign her yearbook because no one really signed her yearbook earlier on the movie. And yeah, I, I think it's it's a it's a punchier ending and, and certainly a more funny ending, which kind of goes along with the dark humor. I, I don't like it a lot of times when movies are predominantly funny and they're going away, but then they have to soften up so that it has like a happy ending and they kind of drop all the humor. They're like, Oh, here's the, we're, we're dropping the humor anchor and the rest of the last 15 minutes is going <laughs> to be feel good, you know, drama. Oh, that is such a real thing that happens, isn't it? Yeah. If the original ending had stuck in there, it would have felt like a bummer. It wouldn't, it would have been fine. Not necessarily what we wanted when, after we had just sat through the last hour and a half. Yeah. Um, you want you want a good punch after that movie. Well, I think that wraps it up for election. Yeah, I think so. Um, man, what a movie! Go if I don't know if, if some of you have seen it. I mean, judging by the box office, not a lot of people went to go see this movie. But hopefully, uh, we've piqued your interest. You want to go see this if you haven't already, and if you have. Please revisit it because I guarantee you, you can watch this movie like two or three times and you'll still be seeing new things. Yeah. Well, what do we have coming up next for, uh, we're, we're staying with the comedy, aren't we? We are. Yeah. I think um, it's one of your favorites you've been wanting to do for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. Wayne's World. I think so. Right. 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 I, uh, I I adore Wayne's World and uh, God that movie still still <laughs> makes me laugh uh, and I'm I'm kind of glad that we're going we're I know sometimes when we when we move into November after we come out of Halloween we've taken it to a very serious area but I, I love that we're kind of staying on the humor train and yeah. um, keeping it fun and keeping it light because I think it's been a a shitty year we need Wayne's World right now yeah we need some Wayne's World I'm looking forward to this one I've never really gone into the behind the scenes of it kind of I mean definitely the SNL aspect yeah. for sure but um, not really beyond that so I'm really looking forward to diving into it yeah. with that well that's up next um, thanks so much for listening um, please do if you can if you're listening on a platform that allows you to leave a review or give us a rating, um, please do. Uh, we always like to hear from people to see what people think of an episode. Um, unless you're totally going to tear us a new one, in which case, you know, maybe send maybe send us an email for that. Yeah, send us an email. We'll, we'll be happy to talk about it. Um, but we read your reviews. We notice when we have a new subscriber. Yeah. Um, Please, please. It means the world to us. And hey, we're on YouTube and everything's on there. Videos, episodes, just like our website. Like, check it out. Subscribe to us. And you can follow us on all your usual uh, social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, We seem to be the most active on Facebook and Instagram because that's just the kind of people we are. But um, I try on Twitter. I just... I just yeah. fail. I'm too wordy. I'm too verbose. Yeah. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that by now. You're better than me. I don't even know how to get on that thing. But if you would like to send us a comment um, privately, you can reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we do have all of our old, we're 60-something episodes into this thing, but uh, 
Lindsay has painstakingly archived all of our episodes in digital format on our website that she maintains at don'tpushpausepodcast.com where you can find all those episodes as well as uh, biographical information on your hosts and a slew of things that you can buy and all that money, the proceeds to that go to help us fund a bigger and better podcast. So, so please, uh, you know, if you're looking to start purchasing some things for Christmas presents for people, there's all kinds of stuff on the website that, that you can buy and all that, that money does help us out. Those keepsake boxes. I've got like four of them. I love them. They're all full of stuff. Yeah, we just I sold, we just sold one the other day. Which one did we sell? Jaws. Ooh, a hot one. I think we could probably, if you want a Jaws box, we could probably make another one. I bet I've got a copy of Jaws around here. Yeah. We'll uh, check out what we have on the website. But until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys.